Hi, I'm Ray from Insert Quest here. My pronouns today are she, her. And with us today is Luke, an Australian story game designer and professional GM for children. Thanks for joining us, Luke. Thank you for having me. Uh, this is going to be really good fun. And what are your pronouns? Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Excellent, 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 excellent. So we normally like to start things off by asking where uh, our listeners might know you from. So how might some of them be familiar with your work, whether they realize it or not? Yeah, um, there are a couple of places, depending on how direct we're talking about. Most directly, I do a bunch of like actual play content. So I have been on Ash McCallan's channel, uh, a CGAC, a bunch. I've done a lot of stuff with Eric, uh, Eric Volgaris. I did some stuff with Andrew Gillis back when they were playtesting uh, Girl by Moonlight on their channel. And then I have a podcast of my own where we play uh, very gay role-playing games. Uh, so you might know me from there. And then kind of at further extension, you may have like, played a game I've written or like seen other people play a game that I've written. Uh, or like, I guess theoretically, if you have ever played monster hearts two, I was like, I, I did a little bit of like consulting on that with Avery. So I guess technically you might have like not heard of me, but like been exposed to some of my design work through that game. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, yeah, I, I think some of our listeners cross over with Roleplaying Public Radio, and recently one of your games was featured on there. That um, is true. We've actually been trying to get an interview with you for a while, but we, I saw that. I'm like, oh, wonderful. Uh, cool. This will be even more topical now. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've really wanted to interview uh, you for a while, pretty much since we met at Ash's place. Yeah, that was really, that was really good. Um, both the game that we got to play in and then, like, the cool trip into the city, which yeah, was it, also exciting. It was a fun trip all around. Um, so we normally like to transition from here to talking about how you first got interested in role-playing games, and then we'll transition into how you became a designer of role-playing games. So why don't you begin by regaling us with the story of how you got into role-playing games as a hobby? Uh, all right, so like flashback. The year is 2005, 2004. There's some contention uh, among parties involved as to exactly when this was. Mm-hmm. That was like 10 or 11. Um, and both of my parents worked. And Wow, so, you're younger than me. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm like 24 this year. I, I actually can't ever remember. I didn't realize you were so much younger than me. Oh, don't, don't worry. Like Ash, Ash. Ash doesn't like being reminded of this fact ever. Wow, okay. For the, for those playing at home, I'm like tw- I'm 27. Mm. Continue. Yeah, so yeah, I'm like 10 or 11. I've got a younger brother. My parents uh, both work. It's the school holidays, right? So like, obviously we have to go somewhere. Um, and my parents have tried a bunch of other places and like, nah, they're all there, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of um, like kind of holiday program care is. Yes, and I then. Recall. And then my mother discovers, I think through a work friend is my dim memory, uh, a place like five, 10 minutes, like near our house that runs uh, various kinds of like artistic creative programs for kids, including uh, a role-playing game program. <gasps> That's so I know. Cool. And so, and so my brother and I um, like go along there and we have like an absolute ball. I decide to play a spellcaster despite having never played a role-playing game before, which like 
no one who's, who's listening will ever will be at all surprised by this. My spellcaster survives. I did very well. My brother's barbarian uh, gets crushed to death by a cave bear. It was a whole thing. Oh, a cave bear death. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, he, I, he was like wrestling with it. And then the party wizard was like, I'm going to send my pseudo dragon familiar to like sting the bear and put it to sleep. And like the whole situation will resolve peacefully. And then it falls on my brother's character mid hug and just like crushes him under its bulk. Very good content. Um, but yeah, so we had, we both had a really good time. And so like next holiday program, we bug our parents, we go back and like, it turns out uh, in hindsight, cause I, I checked recently. So uh, fast forward a couple of years, just because this is important context. I now work for these people. Uh, oh, in fact, I have, I have worked for them my entire adult life. It is the only job I have ever had. And I looked back recently and it turns out that that like holiday that we first went along was the first time the role-playing program had ever run. So I have literally never missed a program. Wow. Even though like some of the early ones, right? Like I did like one day or two days, but like I have never missed a program in 14 or 15 years. That's all right. And so now like now I work there and I'm like the, the manager of that program so that's how I got into role-playing games. Yeah, so that's kind of, I guess th- that... Just casually. Kind of, that kind of answers a question, too, of the what your professional GM for children role is. That's kind of the stuff that you're doing. You're running programs using D and using role-playing games and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, um, and there's, you know, there's a little bit more nuance to that, but like that's the, that's the Cliff Notes version. And then as for getting into design, mm. um, it was a process of... Let me just think through, like, the order these events happen. (laughs) Okay, so, like, I turn, I'm going to say 14, arbitrarily, uh, at which point I'm kind of, like, like technically too young to attend the holiday program anymore. Like, really, I don't need to. Too old, Um, you mean? Yeah, too old. Um, Too young. Did I? Yeah, you said said too young. I'm like, how did you... That that I that is not the words I meant to say. Yes, um, you ought to attend the program. Yeah. If 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 any other like weird brain blips happen, <laughs> please let me know. Um, so I'm now too too old technically, uh, but they have a like a volunteering program and like a GM apprenticeship scheme. Ooh, so GM I, apprenticeship sounds fun. So I actually so correction from the ages of thirteen through until I turn sixteen, I like learn how to DM there. And that's how I learned how to DM. That's just like a good way to learn. Yeah. And I like, I practice and I like help run monsters and I do all this stuff. And I also like get to write my own, like very small, like adventures and dungeons and like house rules and stuff. Then I turn uh, 16 and I am employed there. Uh, And like, as I am employed there and as the years are passing and I'm like, you know, getting more and more involved in that, uh, I start getting more involved, more and more involved with like, Hey, like write, just write this adventure. Like, write the programming for this day. Write the pro- Like, here's the seed of it, but, like, do the work of fleshing it out. And at the same time, that, like, cohort of us who were all volunteering at the same time are all playing with the people who run the program, like, a bunch of games, picking and choosing elements. And at some point in this, like, intermediate period when I was about 18, we sat down and we were like, cool, we're going to stop using a hacked version of, like, D&D 3.5, and we're going to design, like, our own system. Yeah, your own system for the program. That's pretty cool. For the program, which we, we yeah, like we did, and like we're, we we're still doing it, like fucking like, ten years on or whatever. Um, and so like that was like the first piece of design work I ever really did. And then there is a local 
uh, convention in my town. It is like Australia's oldest surviving, like uninterrupted role playing convention. Uh, and it has a very strong, like DIY design your own kind of uh, philosophy. And so then I like started designing like one shot, you know, kind of like convention experiences complete with custom system for that. Do you mind if we and, ask what the name of that convention? Oh, no, absolutely. So it's, it's called Phenomenon. It's been running since like, I want to say like 80 something, 87. It was 25 a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, it's, it's part of this interesting tradition where in Australia, all of the like original generation of role-playing conventions were a lot more like the later US indie cons, like uh, Big Bad Con and like Go Play Northwest. Because imagine Australia in the year 1982, you know, like maybe a thousand people play Dungeons and Dragons. Like there was no money to be made in a trade show con. And so. And, and, and we have to play between the road wars. Yeah. When, when we're not fighting for fuel over and, and fighting over waging wars over cans and, of dog food. And burning out monster manuals, you know, for heat in the wilderness. No, but like, yeah. Yeah, there, was, there was no money to be made in trade, trade shows. And so all of the all of the earliest Australian cons were just like a bunch of people like show up and just like invent games mm-hmm. that like are played eleven times and are then never seen again and lost to the sands of history. And so it was this really cool like hacker indie kind of like games culture that I you know became embedded in and like yeah started like designing a bunch of games for that, which then led into just like designing games randomly for like my home group because like why the fuck not? Uh, and then. There's an intermediate period here. At some point, I uh, encounter like uh, the the indie games movement and like like the post Forge mob and like the work of Vincent Baker and Avery Alder and Adam Coble and Sage Latora and all of these people and become informed by like you know kind of like a, a conscious and like measured kind of like philosophy of design and then start and then I'm like yeah fuck it right like I, I and then there were a couple of years where I was like doing more ambitious things at the local con. And then there was a point where I was just like, fuck it. Like I can design a game that is worth people paying money for. And I just did it. Mm. I guess. Yeah. Um, I'm hoping that I get to run, uh, that we actually get to do this panel, but we haven't gotten our confirmation email yet, but we're hoping to run a panel at PAX that is about uh, how role-playing games are both easier and harder to make than you think. Uh, so, like, all the things you think are going to be hard about role-playing games, super easy. Uh, it's just the fear of getting them done that is the problem. And then all the mm. stuff you think is going to be really easy is really hard because editing and print layout and distribution networks are far more complicated than you think they are. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that's cool that you just were like, fuck it, dove in, because that's very much been my own thing. I can do well. this. Yeah, exactly. It's like I can, I can, I can, I can put words on a page. Yeah, and that like that like basically takes us up to like the, the present moment because that was I started designing my first real game February of la- February of last year, two thousand seventeen. That yes, yes, because it had its one year anniversary back in June. Right. Yeah, like, and that was like the first game that I like started writing with a like full intention of like not just like oh yeah I might kickstart this one day, but I was like. No, like I'm going to design this game. I'm going to like get in touch with some people because at that point I already knew Eric uh, who runs among the t- million and 10 things he does in streaming spaces has a show called Once Upon a Game that is like a variety show for one-shot and systemless role-playing games. It is open to like community signups. And so I'd, like, I was like, hey, Eric, like want to play my weird game that I have like play tested only once before? Mm-hmm. 
And he was like, fuck yeah. And so we did it and it was great. Um, That's cool. And, so yeah, and then, yeah. And so then that game was published in like June, May, something like that last year. And then, yeah. And then I was a designer. Yeah. Uh, cool. Um, so I thought it might be interesting to talk about your design uh, philosophy and like what, mm. uh, I feel like there's a similar vibe as useful and esoteric as that term actually is. I feel like there is a similar vibe running through your games. Um, and I wanted to talk about that. So I, from the outside, I feel like your games all tend to be um, small, highly specific, and also um, kind of weird. And I definitely spell weird with a Y. Mm. Yes. So do, you want to, I have, do you want to expand have, on that assessment? I am Luke Jordan and I approve this message. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't know that I would say small personally, mm. mainly because I've just come out of the like year long marathon that was writing like a, the first draft of like a full PBTA like game in its own right. Oh, I'm doing that right now. Yeah. So like, like I, I don't think, I don't think smallness is inherent to my design philosophy. Right. Uh, I think it's incidental based on public work, pub- published works to date. Okay. Uh, but I think, yeah, I think, I think I have, there are like four keywords that I would use to describe my games. And they S, all start please. with S. They all Ooh. start with S. Nice. Sad, spooky, sincere, and yes, very specific. And often, often, and this is kind of related to that specificity, mm-hmm. uh, often like really intensely local. Like that specificity is specificity of place and specificity of culture frequently. When you say local, do you mean that the games, what do you mean by local is actually a I, better question. Yeah, that's, that is a good question. Um, I mean that they have, there is a landscape to them, um, whether that is, and often it is all of these, but whether that is like a, it, like a physical landscape or a social landscape or a cultural landscape, or like a kind of ontological, mythological landscape. There is like a a landscape to the game and the game like is set somewhere and is about something. Mm. And those things are specific and the game like has a a place that it belongs to. And it's hard to take it out of that place. And yeah, and that place like fucking matters. Yeah. Um, Because a lot of the fiction, because the other thing I would say about my games is that like, they are, at least to date, all fantasy games, because that's the genre I read way too much of um, when I was growing up. And a lot of my favorite works of fantasy are in that, like, 70s, 80s streak of British uh, folkloric fantasy mm-hmm. that is, like, super informed by the nostalgia of authors for, like the like, the rural landscapes that they grew up in. Mm. And so, like, that idea of, like, a sense of place and the sense of place, like, really mattering. Yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about... I, I mean, that, that sounds really cool and stuff, but it's, uh, the part in that that really stuck out to me was uh, that you write fantasy games because that's the genre you read a lot. I, I, when I have written fantasy games, it's because I don't like a lot of fantasy genre stuff and don't enjoy reading it. I'm like, this is dumb, and it should be like this instead. I'm going to make it better. I mean, I'm not, very arrogant. I'm not going to say there's none of that in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, like I haven't written that many science fiction games. I'm like, yeah, I, I know what science fiction I like. I don't need to make more. 
Yeah, it's right. Whereas I'm, I'm more like I don't care about science fiction as a genre space, really. Mm-hmm. Until recently, I discovered that I kind of did, and so I am actually working on a science fiction game. But like, I'm working on a solarpunk uh, transhumanism game because I'm sick of transhumanist games being about like being super soldiers or being like part of a secret conspiracy or something which is fine and cool and everything but i want a game that's about you're a transhuman person and you've got to live your life yeah what's being a person like when when you're you're, transhuman what's being a person like when you are a sentient forest um that stores data for your nation or whatever I think you. I think you used this specific example when we were talking about it when we met in person. Oh, there you go. It's, it's so one strong. of my favorite examples, and it's no, it's, defini- it's definitely my favorite uh, body that I have conceived for myself yet. Um, I think it will be integral to the uh, thirty-three different versions of me. Um, so I thought it might be interesting to talk about um, some of the games that you've made that have stood out to me. And talk mm. about the talk about the stuff that spurred you to make that, and just you can yeah. tell us stuff about it. So I wanted to start by you made a game that is about traveling across a somewhat mystic ocean. Was the pitch that I heard, and I mm-hmm. w- took that to my RPG group. I'm like, we need to play this, and they're all like, yes, that sounds great, and we haven't gotten to it yet, unfortunately. <laughs> But we're like, we just played a bunch of Quiet Year, and I'm like, this! It's like, but on a boat, though! <laughs> yeah. Um, across, yeah, so Across the Endless Sea is a game about a people making a voyage across a vast, surreal, mysterious, fantastical ocean. It comes from... So going back to this keyword of specific, right? Mm-hmm. There is a thing in my design philosophy where I don't really believe in genre. Um not even in like a lot of people say to me like yeah like as a writing tool it's not super useful i'm just like no i just i just don't think it's useful like genre is an analytic tool it's not it's not really useful as a writing tool it's not really useful as a player it's not really i i argue uh actually that useful from a promotional standpoint uh and the example i always like to give is like what does low fantasy even fucking mean Cause like, like everyone likes to be like, Oh yeah. Game of Thrones is low fantasy. I'm like, cool. But like, y'all would also like definitely agree that like, fuck, like, I don't know. Like the dark is rising a like seventies children's series. Like that's also basically low fantasy. And so I'm like, if low fantasy is that broad, then if I say to you, cool, I've written a low fantasy game. Like I'm not actually conveying anything meaningful to you. I'm just buzzwording, mm-hmm. which like, you know, I get it. And like, some people think that thing is valuable and that's fine. But like, I don't want to reach the broadest possible market with my games. I want my games to reach the people who are right for the game. Mm-hmm. And so I would much rather be like, yeah, my, like, I'm not going to tell you my game is low fantasy. I'm going to tell you like, here is specifically what I mean by that. Here's what I'm, I'd be shorthanding for. If you asked me to explain what I mean by low fantasy, this is it. And so I'm just going to I'm just going to start with that. Exactly. And yeah. so like often when I write games, it's not about, it's not a question of genre. It's about like, I have noticed this very particular type cluster of tropes that really interest me. Mm-hmm. And so like across the endless sea came because there is a like weird micro genre of like surreal, fantastical sea voyages that exists 
Uh, you see it in like like Voyage of the Dawn Treader is like entirely this thing. Mm-hmm. There is a whole section of both uh, A Wizard of Earthsea and The Farthest Shore by Ursula Le Guin that separately, like there is that arc in both of them. Mm-hmm. There is a whole like very weird niche genre of Celtic Christianity folklore of like uh, Irish saints sailing to America that is about this thing. Um, and so I was like, yeah, I'm really when into those the, written like the fifth century. About sailing to America, did they? I, no, I, I, the, the word America is not used, but they're sailing to like you know, like a golden land to the west of Ireland, uh, or okay. one the east of west, whichever fucking direction. Ah, uh, it would be west. Yeah, and so like later, later recontextualizing of them has been like, ah, oh, yes, America. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. All right, I'm on the trolley. And I'm like, could that? I mean, maybe they could have just known. May I? It's not. It's not implausible, right? Like. um some of the Micmac made it to, like, Edinburgh Harbour in canoes. So, like, anything's possible. Um, but, yeah, and so I was like, yeah, this very specific niche, tiny thing. I'm, like, super interested in it. I want a game about this very specific experience. Cool. And so then I wrote. I wrote a game about that very specific niche thing. Nice. No one else was going to do it, right? Probably. Cool. The other one that stood out to me is you have one or possibly several, I now realize, games about playing... As trees? Or am I misremembering? I've definitely got one. Cool. I thought you might have had two. I thought you might have had one about playing as trees and one about playing as flowers, but I might be misremembering. But either, either way, you have one about being a tree, right? I, I mean, I don't have one about being a flower yet. But, like, but now I, I put the seed. I'm like, look, I'm not going to say I don't have an idea for another tree game tucked away in my back pocket somewhere. I'm like, maybe someday that'll get worked on. But yes, I have a game. Well, called, you always uh, you always want to have an idea for a tree game because it's better to have an idea for a tree game and not use it than to need an idea for a tree game and not have it. Exactly. Uh, and so, yeah, I have a game called The Hidden Lives of Trees, I think. The Secret Lives of... I don't fucking remember what I ended up calling that game. It went through a bunch of um, revisions. And it is a story game, uh, very heavily inspired by The Quiet Year. Cool. Uh, yeah, where you play trees. Not talking trees, not walking trees, not speaking trees, not again about ants. You're just like, you just play trees. Nice. And I'm so you each, you each create a tree and then the game plays in like five year or decade long or like even century long, depending on the kind of tree you choose, cycles. And like trees become a forest and then things happen to the forest and the forest lives and the forest dies. And it's just a game about like, yeah, telling the story of a forest and like, whether what happens to the forest and which trees live and which trees die. Cool. Kind of sounds, um, it reminds me a little bit, I know not too much, but it reminds me a little bit about, of the Warren and how the Warren is like, you're not magic mm. rabbits. You're just rabbits. You're just normal rabbits. You're just normal rabbits. You might have some very strange rabbit beliefs, but you're rabbits. The Warren is high on my list of games that I would like to play someday. Because ah. the microgenre micro of small talking woodland animal, you know, like... Well, I'm, now I'm I have someone to recruit for our Warren actual play series that I've been trying to do for like three years. Yeah, sign me the hell up. I want to um, do the Southwest Desert playset so bad. It's really, it's really interesting because in the end, it turned out I was, I was not the only person who had this very strange uh, hankering for trees. Mm-hmm. Both one because like that game has like done very well um, by my standards anyway, mm-hmm. um, 
but also because I later I later discovered that someone else had written a game that was like not the same game because it was about one tree. And it, it was also a map drawing game, but you like added like uh, bark rings to your tree as it grew. Oh, that's cool. Which I thought was like super cool. Um, but like clearly I'm not the only person who's interested in like being a tree and meditating on the passage of time. So yeah, it was nice to discover that like, it's always really nice when I discover that like, I'm not the only like very, very weird, obscure like person out there with a hankering for some strange game. Like, one of the things I love the most about the Story Brewers Mm -hmm. is, like, Alas for the Awful Sea is a game I I would have written. I would have written that game. It is, like, the intersection of a whole bunch of my interests in, like, intensely local landscapes and, like, um, you know, like, rural rural communities and, like, the coastline of Britain in the 1800s and, like... I would have written that game, but they wrote it for me, and I was so delighted that they did, because it's a very good game. I feel like lots of the Australian RPG design landscape is... It feels more so than the rest of the RPG design landscape. It feels like we very much have a focus on... We're going to make really, like, specific things. Even the RPGs that I've seen that have come out of Australia where it's been, like... I would I it's a bit broader. It's still like super specific. Like there's an RPG that I interviewed, uh, did an interview with the designers of called Body Count, which not an RPG I'm particularly into, uh, but I found a bunch of the design elements of it really interesting where they uh, they really liked D&D combat and they really liked the, um, the ultra-violence uh, that is sometimes prevalent in the cyberpunk genre. And so they wanted to make a D&D combat cyberpunk ultraviolence game, but that's that's all it does. It doesn't have any of the other... It doesn't translate any of the other D&D mechanics. It doesn't even have mechanics for, like, looting and stuff. There's no real mechanics for doing the out-of-combat stuff. That's all just abstracted. And then the mechanics are all, like, super fast-paced, super violent combat. And it's like... That is very cool to me from a design perspective because, like, very much my eyes were open design-wise when I first discovered or was told about um, Pendragon. Mm. first heard about Pendragon, which is, like, one of the early, oh, we're going to make a really specific RPG. And, like, by my standards now, it's not specific at all. <laughs> um, but, like, at the time, it was really specific because all you could play were Knights in King Arthur's Court. You could only play Knights in King Arthur's Court. Then later on, they added, you can play a knight or a lady of King Arthur's Court, and that's all you can be. You can be one or the other. That's it. That's the game. You're only allowed to be that. There's no Wizards of King Arthur's Court. Those are non-playable. Thank you very much. And also there's like this low-key, or even high-key. I'm not actually, I'd have to ask my friend Stephen, who ran a campaign of Pendragon a while back. But like, there, there, there seems to be this pretty prevalent assumption in Pendragon also that like, not only are you going to play Knights in King Arthur's Court, but you're going to play Knights in King Arthur's Court in the published camp, in like their published adventure path, the Great Pendragon Campaign. Yes, the Grand Campaign book is very useful because it's like, oh, what particular type of King Arthur-like uh, narrative do you want to tell? Do you want to tell, like, the rise of the boy king? Do you want to tell the, like, unification campaigns? Do you want to do the Grail Quest? Do you want to do the, Start like... Start in the year 581 yeah. AD or whatever. Yeah, pick yeah. these things. Um, and they tell, and, like... And they tell you like what horse breeds are available then, and when and at the start of every year they tell you what technology has become available. 
<laughs> or like what what is currently in fashion or what what campaign is where like military campaign it's it's very much not a game uh that I like mechanically, but it's very much a game that has influenced me um, in my design because that was the first yeah. thing specific. And I'm like, whoa, games that are specific instead of sandboxes. That's where it's at. I think it's really interesting. I, I suspect part of this is probably because in Australia we don't really have, uh, and I may, like, I may be wrong and there may be like a handful of these in an indie sense hanging around, right? But like, we don't really have our own game companies mm-hmm. for tabletop role-playing, right? Like there's no Paizo, there's no Wizards, there's no ASM, nothing like that. Yeah, there's no Kiosim, there's no like flying frog press. Like there's not even a fucking like uh burning wheel headquarters, right? Which is like pretty micro by the standards of like a publishing house. And so as a result, in order for us to be able to stand out of the crowd, we have to be weird and specific because otherwise no one in America like very few people in Australia, let alone in America, are ever going to hear of our games. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, I definitely agree with that. Um, what are some of the, and I think this is going to be a difficult question, so I'm interested just to see how you'll put, pair it down into something you can answer. Um, what are some of the games that you've made uh, or contributed to where you have felt really proud of the way you solved the problem, as it were, of making it into a game? How do I make being a tree into a game, for example, like how do you take that from narrative concept to executable game? Uh, so what are some of the ones where you've been really pleased with your solution? Yeah. Yeah. Have fun. Ooh, yeah. This is a hard, this is a hard one. This is a good question. Um, Sometimes finding out how you'll answer the question is, is the real like fun part of the question. Yeah. I mean, you start, I'm going to start like at one end and then I'm going to move, I'm going to oh. move from there. So like one of the games that I was involved with, though I came in quite late relatively in the process, uh, is Between Dreams, which is a game that uh, Ash McCallan and uh, Emily McCallan and myself all wrote together, which is based on some years prior because Emily really loves quote unquote magical realism. Mm-hmm. I'm containing myself on that. There's, Okay, so listeners, there's a very important thing you need to know about me, which is that one of the things that I studied at university was English uh, and like literature. And so I have a vast problem with the way that the term magical realism is thrown around in ignorance of like the specifically anti-colonial goals of the original literary movement of the same name. Anyway, that aside, like, it's like the magical realism, quote unquote. Yeah, because my assumption about what magical realism was is that your magic has concrete rules and, and you have to abide by those rules. But it seems like perhaps that was a mischaracterization of the genre. No. <laughs> but yeah, we're, we're not going to get into it. I'm going to behave myself. That's a whole other topic. That's a whole other podcast. Um, yeah. But yeah, and so like Emily was like really into that and really into like kind of the intersection of the aesthetics of uh, like Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki and uh, Haruki Murakami. And so Ash wrote like a one playbook hack of Dungeon World. It had all of the Dungeon World rules, but it, there was only one playbook and everyone played the same playbook called like Boundary Walker, Horizon Walker, something along those lines. And while I was down in Adelaide, um, staying with some, staying with, staying with Melody, who listeners may be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Interview uh, a few Ash, months ago. 
Yeah, Ash and Emily and Melody and I and uh, some other people, maybe I don't actually remember, played a game of it that Emily ran for it. I was a, I was a ramen chef. It was a very oh. good It was a very good one shot. Um, mm. And we played it and it was like a really, really good time. And I don't think either of them had like revisited it particularly recently. And at the time, and actually, no. So we were visiting Mel. I was staying with them that week. And so on the car ride back to Ash and M's place, we had this whole conversation about it. And we talked about the game and the ways in which like the lingering dungeon world isms of it really weren't serving the game. And how a bunch of the lingering trappings of that were like really weirdly diluting like the heart of what was there. And I yelled a bunch about magical realism and the history of it as a literary movement. And then the next day it was like uh, disgustingly hot. It was like 42 degrees or some bullshit because this was in the middle of summer. And so we all went out the back to the wagon that Emily had set up at the time as a uh, like artist's retreat workplace, which is the only air conditioned space in there in properties that they own. And so we all piled in there, turned on the air conditioning and basically wrote a game. And anyway, the reason I bring this up uh, as an answer to this question is because like, like, yeah, how the fuck do you turn like Haruki Murakami or like, right? Like the kind of more fantastical half of Studio Ghibli's oeuvre or like slice of life. Like how do you turn any of these things into a game? And we ended up writing a game that like is all about intimacy and relationships uh, that you play to close the distance between you, which has kind of like way more moves that are about, yeah, like interacting with other human beings than about anything else. Mm. Uh, the, vi- the violence move, and I'm still really proud of this, and I can't remember if it was Ash or I who like came up with the core kernel of the idea, um, but the violence move is like, if someone does violence to you, choose are you going to A, fight, up, fight back, B, curl up and take it, or C, run away. Yeah, And there's consequences attached to all of those things. But, like, there is no role. There is no version of this where, like, you're the most badass ever. Like, the fight back option is cool. Gain a distance with another player character. Yeah. Like, you having done violence, like, makes your relationships more alienated. Yes. And so, yeah, that is that is a game that I think translates a thing that is really weird and specific into, like, a game experience uh, in a way that I'm really proud of. I also think... If I'm like sifting back through, <sighs> why am I blanking on games I've written? Because I basically asked you to just pick out some to yeah. tell us yeah. about, and it's everyone, super difficult. Everyone like, hangs oh, out moment. Yeah, what's your what's your favorite song? Uh, I've never listened yeah. to music before in my what life. What do you mean? Yeah. Uh, what's a, what's the song? Yeah, I'm just I'm just now very quickly uh, scrolling through the folders where I keep all my games assigned work. Look, whatever you need to do to okay, find okay. something. Okay. Okay. Uh, I wrote a game once called The Blood Must Flow. Whoa! It's 200 words. Exactly. This was for the 200-word RPG. But is it exactly 200? I think it's actually slightly less. It's like 194. It'd be very technically. Cool My entry was 196 um, this year. And The Blood Must Flow is me trying to take a tourism campaign and turn it into a role-playing game. Okay. There is Australian Australian listeners will, may well be familiar with this because it's kind of infamous. Mm-hmm. Uh, overseas listeners, please go to YouTube and look this up. Uh, there was some years back an advertising campaign for South Australia and specifically for the Barossa Valley, uh, and it was this really weird tourism campaign. The video is like uh, a lot of shots of like uh, people's hands and like people doing work and like 
sweeping sun-baked vistas and like moody nighttime shots of like a feasting table and like a bunch of shots of like people tearing into food in a way that's really like visceral and like slightly disturbing. And the music that plays over this is uh, Red Right Hand by Nick Cave. Wow. And the tagline of this advertising campaign was The Barossa, Be Consumed. Yeah. Did Nick Cave make the, the ad? Because it feels like Nick Cave made the ad. Yeah, it, it, he didn't. But like, it feels very Nick Cave. It also like, ever since the first time I ever watched it, I was like, this looks like the design team behind NBC's Hannibal were hired to make a tourism well, campaign. In my head, I was picturing... Um... I was picturing the proposition, which is written by Nick Cave. Mm. But yeah, and so like I really, I, I really love this tourism video. I think it is like the trailer to a horror film that I'm never going to get to watch. But like, God, it looks really good. And so you and made so, it into a role. And so I made it. And so I made it into a role playing game, which is like halfway to being. You could turn it into a LARP like so easily. And it is a game about a bunch of people who live in like a rich agrarian community coming together for a like autumn feast at the end of which one of them will be sacrificed to feed the land so that it continues to be fertile. Are you going to pack sauce? Cause if you are, we're playing, that. We're, am, playing yes. that. we're playing that. I'm playing right. that with you. I'm fucking down. That's going to be good. We're playing that yeah, game. So, so that is a, that is a game that I, that where I took like a very, very niche cultural experience I had had and was like, no, but there has to be a role playing game. There has version. to be. It's that, it's that, uh, it's that joke retaken from that uh, brief history of the world video. It's like, oh, you could, you could make a religion out of this. It's, you could make a role-playing mm. game out of this. Oh, look, a seagull. You could make a role-playing game out of that. <laughs> Which I believe was someone else's joke on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> other than that, let me think. Well, I did have some other things if you were if you wanted to move on to something else. But if you have another okay, one that stands I'm gonna, out, I'm going to just in passing. I'm going to talk about this. Sure. Uh, I it. once read a piece of fan fiction and turned it into a role playing game. What was the con broad context it, of the? It was of... not smutty. If that's okay. what you're asking. No, no, no. no this, I meant like what was the fandom? This, this, this was someone had written uh, like a. Uh, like a long, like these were each like 200,000 words or something. And there were like three of them, but like a, 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 a sequel to and response to uh, spirited away. Okay. Interesting. And like uh, this person, the, the author had uh, spent like a bunch of time living in Japan and was very like well read around a bunch of the same folkloric sources that uh, Miyazaki had dug into. And I think at least at the time they were writing it, I don't know if this is true anymore, but used to like, do panels at like anime conventions about like the folkloric and historic roots of like spirited away and do like analyses. So like this person knew their shit is what I'm saying. Nice. And there was a section, I think it was the second in this trilogy of like sequels in which uh, like a bunch of the Kami wound up uh, stranded in Tokyo. And it was all about like the alienation of like uh traditionally kind of imagined Kami in a world that is filled with things that are like understood to be anathema to them and in a world that doesn't share any of their value systems anymore. And about the question of like how, you know, like how, how much can you change and like how can you then scrape a life by in this very like disorienting place? And then I read a Richard Psych, and then because the other thing this game was inspired by was a line of poem, mm-hmm. which is there is a line of rich of poetry by Richard Sykin which is how much can you change uh, like before it's a kind of murder? 
and I was really interested in that. And so I wrote a game about these two things. Um, oh my goodness, that reminds me of it reminds me a lot of my personal transhumanism stuff and why I do not fear mind duplication like many people I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, well, I mean, duplicate my mind every second and erase the previous version. So I'm not afraid of that happening. But yeah, and so that was, that was a con game that I wrote, uh, you know, a couple of years back. And see, so yeah, I, t- I, t- I took a piece of fan fiction and a quote of po- and a line of poetry and I turned them into a game experience that like got pretty rave reviews at that con. So Sounds cool. Yeah. One of these days I might get around to finishing. All of the player starts facing stuff is pretty good, but a lot of the GMing side of that was either just like in my head or like was corrections I made to like my print copy of the module as we went along. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. all of that would need to be like restructured and presented so usefully for other people. That is the hardest part of writing more uh, more detailed RPGs I have found is that um, you need to take you need to take all of the GM experience you have for running this game and then distill it down into tools to help people run the game the way just roughly the way you 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 run it because they don't they don't know that oh if you can't work out how to do this thing then do this like oh the rules don't specifically represent that then do this thing in place of that uh, you need to it was it was really really interesting um we talked about role playing public radio earlier mm-hmm. the one the one of my con games uh that i have finished doing this adaptive process with and published uh, Bridget from Role Playing Public Radio ran for a bunch of those folks at Gen Con. And it is a game, it is probably the game I have written that is like the most specific in how it needs to be GM'd. Mm-hmm. Because at times it needs, it calls for like incredibly present, like incredibly like restrictive GMing. And at other times it literally tells you to walk out of the room and leave the players alone for 20 minutes and go and get a t- thing of tea, <laughs> which I would do every session of the con. I'd just like do the rounds and be like, hey, everyone, how you doing? Um, and so, yeah, it was really interesting to, like, listen to someone else run the game and be like, oh, like, I did it. Like, all of the, all of the essential stuff was there, and Bridget was able to replicate it. And I was like, yes, accomplishment. Fantastic. That's so cool. Um, so there was something that I wanted to talk about, because we did mention briefly the 200-word RPG challenge. Uh, mm. So when I was down in Adelaide, and you were there at the same time, and we got to see each other for a day, um, I had a very rough layout of my 200 word RPG. Um, and I had planned to work on it that day, but didn't get to it and then had to submit it the next day. And I was like, Oh, I got to do that. Cause I really want to do it just to have had something put out. Um, mm. Because I think it would, would be, I, basically I was under the, I, I was, I had made the assessment rightly for myself that once I had gotten one thing out, everything else yeah. would become easier to do. Uh, which did turn out to be the case. Um, and so I'm like, oh, I'm just, I'm, 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 it's currently like 140 words, but I think maybe I want to use more. And I ended up settling on 196 with some clarification of um, phrasing and things. But you said to me that the real winner of the 200-word RPG challenge is not somebody that writes a game in under 200 words. It's someone who writes a game in under 80 words. And guess what I did? I'm very proud of you. I wrote and a LARP that fits onto a double-sided business card that is 77 words. That is dope as fuck. And I'm so into it. 
I don't know if we'll get to play it at PAX because we definitely won't be able to play it within the venue of PAX. Um, But if you will forgive me a digression, I would very much like to share it with you now. And this will be the first opportunity that anyone has had to see it um, on the show. Uh, So uh, I'm just going to read out the text of the business cut. Uh, So side one says, uh, Erotia, a LARP of gods, intimacy, and sexuality. Fuck yes. Together, we discuss our limits and pick a safe word. Erotia begins when we are all ready. We embody our roles, act with divinity, and share passion. It ends when uh, when we each decide or the safe word is used. Side two has this line in italics, answer for yourself, then speak these truths. And then it has this underneath with a bunch of blank spaces. I am blank, the blank. My domain of power is blank. I am worshipped with blank and offer blank in return that we might blank. Uh, So side two is basically your character sheet. And side one is the explanation of how you play the game. That is a that is a very good game. I'm, it reminds me of the 280 character RPG that went around after Twitter doubled its character count. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was you a know, whole thing. Yes, I recall. That would that's probably close to that. Hang on. I'm curious. Yeah. Let me give, give it a let's give it a check. Um, tools. Uh, Will it fit in a tweet? Word count. It's 421 characters, but that's two look, tweets still. Side A and side B. Yeah, side A and side B. But yes, I'm going to be giving that out at PAX Australia uh, in place of business cuts. Uh, I'm into it. That's good. This year. Um, my friend Finn is helping me with that. I'm very excited. I'll also have like a bunch of other stuff at PAX to Yeah, fuck. I probably, should, I probably should make some business shit. <laughs> right? Look, I'm going to have to add that to the to-do list. Uh, business cards are useful just so that you don't have to like write down all your details for somebody uh, so i still have like a whole bunch of business cards from when i first started insert quest here uh, so somebody paid me for a audio recording job um in business cards uh so i recorded mm. the voicemail message for their photography business uh and in return they bought me all the business cards i could ever need um so i have those that uh yeah works pretty good as long as i don't mm-hmm. change any <laughs> anything <laughs> i just gotta cross out the qr code on the back because we're gonna have a new website url soon uh but yeah so i really wanted to share that with you because when you said that to me i was like oh yeah i don't think i'd ever be able to do that and then i fucking did it and i made it to fit on a business card anyway well this is this is the ironic part about my participation in the 200 word rpg is that like like yes i wrote a game and like mm. I, you know i'm quite proud of it someone compared it kind of favorably like they were like, oh, yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about this list of finals. Here are some games I thought should have been finalists. My game was on there. I felt very flattered. Nice. And they compared it favorably to Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, which is a uh, short story that I like really love. <laughs> so I was like, yes. Uh, but I did a lot of like, like I think I, I was compl- I was making the same complaints to Ash at one point, and I was like, yeah, two hundred word, oh, fuck that. Like two hundred word and no verbs. I want to see someone do that. And indeed, Ash did proceed to write a 200-word RPG with no verbs in it that was still playable. I think I think I know what god you are. I think you are uh, the. I think you're definitely the god of um, good-natured challenge. 
right? <laughs> the, the issuing of a challenge to spur you to better yourself, you know, the low stakes challenge. It's like, yeah, I mean, sure, you could fret over use it, whether you're going to use your 200 words effectively or you could write an RPG that uses less than 80. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have to. I'm just saying. That would be... Yeah, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know? It'd no be obligation. a challenge. <laughs> Well, yeah, sure, like the 200-word RPG challenge is difficult, but what if you did it with no verbs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wonderful. Yeah, no, I, I think uh, you, you're, your games always stand out to me and your, and your work in general, um, from what I have seen, always stands out to me as very presenting a really unique angle on the, on the kind of stuff that you can do with it. And... I mean, we've played, I think, one, maybe two. No, one. We've played one game together, that one Dungeon World session of Splintering mm-hmm. Wheel. And even in that, I was like, oh, wow, that's just a really, that's a really interesting take on all of this. Um, and, you know, I think that probably influenced when I made my paladin. I made another a paladin for Splintering Wheel, and I was like, I'm going to make a magical job, but a magical girl paladin, because there's nothing that says that I have to be a paladin all of the time. Mm, that's true. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think Ash Ash McCall and I have had this conversation a lot of times because I think it's really it's really true and like the two of us in relation to one another like make it really clear that like like I think it is a fact, right? Like designers have different strengths. Like we all know this. Mm. And like in the same way that like Ash's Ash's like greatest skill as, as a designer, and I admire this tremendously because I can't fucking do it if you like gave me five years and like a million dollars to support myself and I did nothing but do this is Ash makes numbers do magic tricks. Like, I still remember the first time I ever played The Republic and just, like, the fucking... The, the dice mechanics of, this, of that game feel so, like, wondrous and unexpected and powerful and just, like, really, really cool. And at first, you're like, I don't get it. And then, like, this deep underlying, like, magical logic of it, like, becomes clear... And I, I can't do that. I don't do that. I'm, I'm bad at maths. I stopped taking it in year 11. Um, what, what I can do is I can write. I can write words. I can write words real good and like make people have feelings. And what I'm really interested in games and what I think is perhaps an underexplored design trend, at least for my money, is that there is not actually a hard dividing line between like mechanics on one end and like fluff flashback to 2005 uh, on the other. And like, I'm really interested in like soft mechanics and the idea of mechanics that are just instructions or mechanics that are just words. Mm. If we like borrow for a moment, the, the, the structure of like a powered by the apocalypse game, like all of those moves that exist that are just whether they're not like roll 2d6 moves, they're just like, when you blank, a thing happens. Here is how it works. Blades in the Dark does a lot of it. And yeah, I'm really I, interested in... I was going to say, I, I, I definitely took that for... I took some of that for my latest Powered by the Apocalypse game, um, which I'm currently making. Um, and I also made a lot of the moves where it's like, oh, you roll and then you get a bunch of stuff. You get a bunch of points that you spend to pick off things from the list. Because I really like the ones where it's like, here's a bunch of stuff to pick off and like sometimes you can make a really hard choice in there like the physical violence move in my game is like one of the options is choose not to take damage from the enemy which means if you don't take that you're taking damage from the enemy so that's like 
Yeah, it's like, yeah, you could do all this cool extra damage and stuff, but... I have, I have two games I would like to strongly recommend to you. Mm-hmm. One, uh, Vincent Baker's Mobile Frame Zero Firebrands. Yes. Political romance mech game where, like, a lot of that kind of picking picking things off lists game. And two, uh, Across the Endless Sea, my, my like, weird seafaring game. That, that it, It's all just about picking from lists. I'm so keen. Also, my, my friend, game is also a mecha RPG. My, my friend Andrew, when they played it for the first time, they're like, you took my favorite part of Powered by the Apocalypse games, which is the bit where they make me choose cool options from lists, and you just made that the whole game. And I was like, yes, yes, I did. <laughs> oh, so keen. But oh. yeah, like to talk, to talk about soft mechanics for a moment, right? Like, yes, go for it. F- for instance, like looking just at the, the blood must flow, the blood must flow is 200 words or whatever. Um, it comes in two halves. There's a hundred words that is just me setting the scene and writing words that make you feel things. And then there's words that are like mechanic words, but they're like, they say things like describe the gift you bring to the feast, what it is, how it looks, how it was made. And remember, make everything lush, morbid, and visceral, which like, I, I, I will like st- plant a stake in the, on top of a hill and I will like fight to my dying breath. That is a mechanic just as much as, like, any rule in Dungeons and Dragons. I think the LARP wording of that is, uh, bring a gift to the feast, uh, right? and, then, <laughs> and then introduce it by exactly. describing how you made it. Or, yeah, or, and so, uh, like... And keep it visceral, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so even, even like, the only, uh, like, conflict resolution mechanic in this game is, like, when you all agree, the par- agree it's time, the party ends. The killing time has come. Each reveler votes for who should feed the land. If you are chosen, describe your death. The others describe how they prosper this year. If there is a tie, famine comes. All describe how the land turns sour and brings you low. I can't wait to play this game! And, and that's, that's conflict resolution, right? It sounds so good. It's so good. Oh. And so, yeah, it's... It is, it is really important to me that, like, as designers, we understand that there is a whole wide world of mechanics out there and ways to structure games and ways to organize games and ways to resolve mechanics that don't involve dice or randomization or numbers or, like, any of that. And that just, like, the, the order in which we tell people to do things, that's mechanics, the words we use to do it and like the feeling that they give and the effects they have, that's also mechanics. Uh, and I think it is a massively like under, under recognized and under considered um, area of design. And I also think just to get on a pet bugbear here, I think it. the idea of resolution mechanics is vastly overrated. Uh, I saw some time ago, some people on the internet arguing about whether uh, Apocalypse Worlds moves are task resolution or conflict resolution. And I just, I just looked at this with kind of like bemusement because the point of Apocalypse World, and again, I will like plant a flag in a hill and defend this to the death. Like the point of Apocalypse World is that none of the moves are about resolving things. They're about spinning play. Like they don't close off possibilities. They spin things forward into more interesting directions. Mm, and so I think like, about that. more games that imagine, yeah, like the results of conflict or like the results of mechanics as not resolution, but like momentum and progression. I need to change the wording of something and live, love, die just quickly. That's quite all right. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, my violence move needs to be updated. It, yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Yep, I'm getting rid of that Sunder weapon move. And that's becoming a different thing. Because you're right. The, the moves should spin the action forward or spin the narrative forward. Yeah, which, like, at the, at the same time, and I think this is important to, to say, like, that doesn't mean that uh, they can't constrain things. Because, like, a huge part of the reason that I feel so strongly that system matters uh, and that, like, the games that we play matter is because restraint is productive. Like, yes. having, thing, having things that are not on the table is productive. It helps us be more creative. It pushes us in interesting directions. The reason a game has a system is to make us go into territory that we wouldn't necessarily go ourselves and explore directions and like turns of events that we wouldn't necessarily think of or choose to think of ourselves. And so I think it is super, super vital that like it, like it is fine for a conflict and the mechanics that govern that conflict to be like, cool, like your arm is chopped off or your weapon is broken and you don't have a weapon anymore or you die. But nothing, it shouldn't just like close down at the end and be like, and now we're done, like, and the fight is over and like everything is perfectly resolved now and like you ended the mini boss fight sequence and now we're back in the other part of the game. Like be messy and be weird. Yeah, no, I think that really holds. And you've, you speak to their two things that I have definitely repeated on uh, Insert Quest here from pretty much the first time they were mentioned, and that is that the system you choose to play in matters, and different systems are more useful tools for specific narratives. And so it is useful to have, if you're interested in telling diverse, and when I say diverse there, I mean like lots of different kinds of narrative um, stories, then you need to have diverse tools. You can't build a house with a hammer alone. Uh, but also that thing of uh, restriction um, in creativity uh, is, uh, is useful. And that's a thing that we've had as a principle here since, uh, since our, duh, our, our no longer on the show uh, friend Kim mentioned it. Um, and they brought that to us from music. It's like when we sit down to write, write a song, we don't say, cool, let's write a song today. You like say, I have this melody. Let's flesh that out into another piece. Or let's try and write a reggae song today or stuff like or, that. Or, hey, we're composing with a piano, yeah, which like exactly. necessarily rules some things out. Yeah, exactly. Not probably yeah, not making think, a dubstep track. Although... And I think, <laughs> and I think it, it is an important like expansion on the idea that system matters that like, again, we consider that like, some mechanics are soft and a lot of my games, a lot of my recent games, I'm like working on like loosely a, like a collection quote unquote of like one page role-playing games. Mm-hmm. Uh, mainly because John, I, John Harper some years ago wrote a game called the Mustang. That's two pages. And I was like, come on, John, like fuck off, John, you can do better than that. Um, and indeed, in some years later, in conversation, John John did say to me that uh, he, you know, was very impressed by my one page RPG, and I was like, "Yes, I did it." Um, but like a whole a whole chunk of those like one page RPGs, like I quote unquote waste a whole half of like one of the four columns that I have on just like flavor text that is to be read out loud at a certain point in the game mandatorily, mm. and like that's a fucking mechanic. 
That is I part of the system. That. I love that, that stuff. is there for a reason. And like, it matters that it is there. Like, could you play a game about shipwreck, shipwrecking on the Cornish coast in the late 1870s without like my game? Like, yes, you absolutely could if you knew your shit, but like it would not be the same experience because for instance, like it would not have that, ra- that ritual phrase, which I designed to affect you and to act as mechanics on like the mood of the group in a particular way. And so I just think this idea of like the division between system and setting and the division between mechanics and fluff, I think a lot of these things are less plot twist. A lot of these binaries are arbitrary. Oh, weird. And not in fact absolute. Weird. And And I think when we talk about system mattering, we often default to a very mechanistic a uh, very mathematically minded picture of what system looks like in that sense. Yeah, for sure. And I think it is important to consider the ways that system matters like beyond that and that system can contribute beyond that. Yeah, for sure. No, definitely. That's a pretty, I think that's a pretty wonderful place to end a yeah. little discussion. I think that we've given listeners a lot to take away from that. And uh, so I hope that you all enjoyed listening to this discussion with Luke. It's been a pleasure having them on. Um, Luke, if people want to find more from you, where can they find it? Yeah, um, there are a couple of places. If you would like to buy any of the games that I have written that we have talked about, uh, you can find most of the ones I have published solo uh, at gamesfromthewildwood.itch.io. And there'll be links to all of this down below. And there will be links to a lot of things. Uh, if you'd like to support games I'm working on at the moment, uh, which include, let me just like briefly have a look at my folder where I keep track of that, which include my sci-fi game, which is about a uh, found family in space, mm. uh, and my weird Irish exiles questing through the other world for redemption game, and then some other even weirder stuff that I'm not going to talk about. If you'd like to check out any of that, patreon.com slash games from the Wildwood. You can follow me on Twitter at Wildwoods Games, where I occasionally yell about things. I'm not good at retweeting i'm not very good at like yelling about things but i'm trying to get better at like interesting yelling rather than just yelling at my friends uh and then i have a podcast where it's an actual play podcast focused on queer representation fiction first gaming and intimate stories uh it's called feelings first you can find us on twitter at feelings first underscore we played half of it half of a campaign of monster hearts uh, that unfortunately got cut short by some uh, personal circumstances among the cast. But that's like a really, really good Monster Hearts campaign that I'm very proud of. Uh, and we're currently in the middle of a campaign of Dogs in the Vineyard, Ooh. which I think like character creation episode goes up like today or tomorrow as of the recording. So yeah, go go to Feelings First underscore on Twitter and check that shit out. I'm torn between, I really want to learn more about the Dogs in the Vineyard and also I don't want it to corrupt my process of creation for other things that I have that have similar themes. Mm. Um, which is a, a bunch of, I told a bunch of people that I was working on a mecha RPG and they linked me to a bunch of mecha RPGs. I'm like, no, no. Not, that sounds cool. I'm not looking at it till I'm done and this game is published because I don't want to be, I don't want to be like, ooh, should my game have that? If I didn't think about it, then my game doesn't need it, clearly. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, those 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 are the main places on the internet that I can be found. Yeah, excellent, cool, and we'll have links to everything that Luke just uh, talked about down below. 
Um, if you want to uh, support us on Patreon and help us to create uh, more actual plays and more interviews with more interesting designers and things like this, uh, you can check that out. Uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you get access to our behind-the-scenes podcast called Quest Markers, where we talk about what goes into making this uh, show and, well, the podcast as a whole, and also the stuff that we're currently working on. The one for September, I actually talked about um, not so much the mechanics, but the process that went into making Live, Love, Die so far the Mecha RPG that I'm working on, um, as well as talking about Swedish folk music. And there was something else I talked about. Soup. I talked about soup. Uh, so, yeah, you can check that stuff out. Uh, we also talk about like things that are happening in the game industry. I try to keep it positive, but occasionally White Wolf exists. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... But please check that out. And if you enjoyed this uh, interview, please share it and let us know down below uh, if you have any questions for Luke or myself about the things we talked about uh, or just in general. But other than that, thank you for being on, Luke. Uh, And farewell from the past. I'm Ray.